with you today. I almost feel like I should be saying, um, I remember well the 100th anniversary. Anybody remember? Uh, yeah. I think, I think if I remember correctly, Jim Cole was driving me in a horse and buggy, dropping me off at the front door. <laughs> should mention Jim because he's uh, certainly a significant portion of uh, our roots here as uh, somewhere back in the early part of 1981, um, he, uh, I guess, was speaking to the leadership here, uh, connecting me up. I was in, uh, in Nassau County at the time, ministering as an associate pastor at Franklin Avenue Baptist Church there. And um, <clears throat> Jim talked to me in leadership, and lo and behold, that started uh, a relationship, a courtship, and an 11-year wonderful marriage here. Uh, that we treasured. I, I thought yesterday afternoon, all the celebrations, a, a, a moment of, um, of pause as I realized that tomorrow, 23 years ago, was the day that moving trucks came into that driveway and packed us up to leave New Village. It was on Labor Day in 1992. That was a tough, emotional day. Uh, the weather fitted. It was kind of misty and damp. Our poor dog, Penny. Remember Penny? Remember Penny? What Chuck Johnson used to say about Penny, who beat her with an ugly stick? It was a... <laughs> she was so ugly, she was cute, you know. She was just laying out in the middle of the field in the misty rain, completely lost with what was going on. And I remember when... Um, the trucks were filled and everyone left. I was alone. And I think for the next 15 minutes, I just laid on the rug in the living room and wept. Not so much sadness, but just in, in thankfulness. Uh, just in, in, in one moment, just sweeping remembrances of 11 years here that seemed to move so quickly. And I can say to you honestly that there were more lessons that you taught me than I ever came close to leaving with you. So much of what God did in equipping me for the years that would follow <clears throat> came because of relationships that were forged here, because of vision that God produced in me, a stretching, a change, a, a maturity. You were a part in what God did to mold me and to change and shape me. And I want to just thank you, the faithful servants who have been part of this flock for many years, and certainly many of you who were a part of the ministry during the 11 years we were here, to thank you for your patience with me, your encouragement. At times, you're challenging me. I needed them and, and much more. And I'm grateful because, isn't it true, along the journey, God will use not only His direct work in us and the truth of His Word, but He'll use the body of believers to be that source of exhortation and encouragement in our lives. Isn't that true? Aren't you? We desperately need the body of Christ. And we need to be all that God's called us to be for each other, in each other, to produce what He wants to accomplish not only in us and, and through us. And so this morning, much of what I'm going to be sharing with you is really an exhortation to the church. And I realize it's not just for New Village, but also for the uh, many, many churches that are represented as a lot of you have traveled from place to place. And um, many of you have settled in, in, I guess, what you're calling 
Jerusalem 2, somewhere around Harrisburg, Pennsylvania area, seems to be the <laughs> Jerusalem 2. Seems like that's, that, that's, some of you are misled. We have to correct a little theology here. Uh, just, just don't understand it. No, no, Jerusalem 2 is Brooklyn, number one. So, so get that one straight. And, 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 and if you're going to get in line, uh, Jerusalem 3 has to be southeast Florida, because that's where all our people have migrated and settled anyway. So, so get in line. You know, this is, you know. Uh, it is um, just wonderful renewing deep friendships and relationships. And so many of the conversations yesterday were a, a reminder of relationships forged and still there, even though we have not seen each other, maybe have not spoken. It's one of the few areas where I'm thankful for Facebook, where uh, we, can, we can keep up with one another. And it's a joy to see those uh, those pictures. Uh, Linda puts up all the pictures of me. I apologize for that. Um, they, they, they really shouldn't be there. They should be censored. But um, it, is a, it is a wonderful, wonderful privilege to be able to be back, to be back with you. God is good, isn't he? So good. When we left here in 1992, went to central Pennsylvania, uh, our kids were young teenagers. Kimberly was uh, just a couple of years old. We had no idea the adventures that would lie in front of us. Uh, God did so much in our family and in our kids. Um, many of you know the, the trauma, and I could never have imagined when we left here in, in 92 how we would be reconnected in such a sobering way in July of 1996 when TWA Flight 800 went down off the coast of Long Island, not far from here. Many of you know that the town I was in where I was pastoring, we lost um, 16 students and five chaperones. Some of them came to our church. And uh, that was a momentous, life-transforming event for scores of families. From the first night ministering, counseling the families, and in the many, many days and weeks that would, would follow, Never, never would have anticipated leaving here that God would be equipping for a ministry that would reconnect us here to, to Long Island in, in many ways. A lot of our families were here for an, a number of weeks. Our associate pastor went to be with them. Uh, I stayed behind in ministry to community, and uh, two nights after that tragic event, uh, I received a number of letters from some of you here uh, as the, the, a memorial service was held at the school high school that night, uh, there were about 10,000 people in that high school, media all over the place. And uh, it was an extraordinary event. And I, I mean this sincerely. So much of what God did in my life here in very specific ways equipped me for that particular night. As we gathered, uh, that was supposed to be just a... Um, a time for a group of us pastors to just read a verse of Scripture and then have a quiet time for prayer and then lead in prayer. It was to be a very quiet, solemn evening, and so I had my brief Scripture picked. There were four or five other pastors the same. We met together uh, just before the service was to begin, and um, the, the president of our ministerium, reminded people of the sequence and order and assignments of when we would go up, when we would read. And he gave the assignments to everyone. He didn't give me 
mine. And he said casually at the end, one minute before we were about to walk out on the platform, he said, oh, by the way, at the end, Gary, I'd like you to be able to share some important biblical truth to the people tonight. They need to hear the word of God. And I, and I stood there frozen. You, you, excuse me? It's like one minute before we're going out. And he said, oh, by the way, don't worry about it. Governor, Governor Ridge is here, uh, Mayor, Mayor Giuliani is here, and some from President's Cabinet, they're sitting up in the front row. So, but you just go ahead and, and preach the word. Uh, so after the glue dried from the bottom of my shoes and, and moved out uh, as we went out on the platform together, several, several thoughts came into my mind. Actually, one of them was you. Thinking of uh, so much that God taught me that I had wished I had learned early enough here to be able to put into, into practice as a shepherd. Uh, there are several questions I have of the Lord at the end when we get there. Why is it that we learn uh, uh, how to be um, husbands, fathers, and shepherds when too many years passed? You know, it's like we want to be able to push the redial and, and reset and do it all over again. So many lessons come years down the road. And I, I mean this sincerely. In, in those brief moments leading up to that one, uh, God used so much of what he taught me here with you to equip for that special moment. And so we treasured the years here. We were grateful for the years we had in Central PA, years that I've had in, in counseling, and teaching, pastoring now at State College. Um, we'll be going back to Penn State where we live um, tomorrow afternoon. You can pray for that reunion because that's a town in mourning after the drubbing they took from Temple yesterday in Philadelphia. <laughs> Ooh, I don't want to hear voices tomorrow. That's going to be rough. Yeah. I trust as we search the Scriptures together, share with you some thoughts, that this will be an encouragement for you personally, for New Village Church, for the churches you represent wherever you are. It is a challenge and exhortation that comes from the book of Hebrews in the 12th chapter, and I'd like to invite you to turn with me there. And um, let's see. Would you be offended if I left this and joined you down there? Because I, I have, for a number of years, given up on this stuff, and I don't know, I, I just feel so much more connected here. And um, so I'm going to join you, if you don't mind, and um, we don't need all this stuff anyway. Just, we just need... The scriptures. If, if you would join me to the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews, and while my thoughts and observations will primarily be rooted in verses 12 through 17, I, I want to set the stage backtracking to the first verse. Read verses 1 and 2, because the imagery that is there is picked up on once again at, at verse 12. So here is the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 12, the familiar first verse. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. And that no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal, for you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it with tears. Would you pray with me? Our God, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, who alone shines light on your eternal truth, on the Word of God, which is rich and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, on that which is your very breath, which reproves as it teaches, which corrects and trains us in righteousness that we might be men and women of God, thoroughly furnished for every good work, may by your indwelling spirit and your presence in our midst, may you shine light on your truth that would exhort and encourage and challenge us as we look ahead. That the next 200, should Jesus tarry, we would find ourselves in a place where you would look at us and say, well done. That we would honor you and walk with you in our ministry to and with and for one another. So speak truth to our hearts. We need you. We come and we give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever found yourself in a place where physically you are absolutely spent? completely worn out and exhausted, where you feel like even breathing, even inhaling and exhaling is way too much energy. It's not even there to expend. Anybody ever been there? Been there, maybe there now? Let's take that to another realm for a minute. Forget about the physical exhaustion. Have you ever been in a place where emotionally, spiritually, personally, relationally, you're kind of feeling the same way. And there's a part of you that says quietly in the hiddenmost parts, I'd like to pack it in. I wish I could just disappear, be gone, hide, go on a permanent siesta. Hard places to be, aren't they? Those places in the journey can make us or break us. There are moments where genuine faith in Jesus Christ can be confirmed and strengthened and we can discover a newness to life that we would never have imagined before. 
they can also take us to a place where the emptiness and hollowness of our spiritual lives can be all too apparent. And looking in the mirror, we might say to ourselves, I have no idea, really, God, who you are. I have no idea, God, who I am. I have no idea if I'm connected to you. I have no idea how to be. I can't find you. I can't find me. I can't find life. It could be in those moments that looking in the mirror, some of us would ask ourselves, have I ever really embraced Jesus as Savior to begin with? That's an okay place to be. It's kind of frightening if you're in that place emotionally and spiritually where you don't even consider that question. That's more frightening. 2,000 years ago, our ancestors in the faith, Jewish believers in Jesus, many of them, countless thousands, were at that place. They had been brutalized at every level spiritually, physically, emotionally, relationally. Many of them felt like it was too difficult to go on. Many of them were ready to pack it in. In fact, many of them had. The persecution that started early on, remember Saul of Tarsus marching them off to prison in Damascus up in Syria? Concentration camps for Jews, forerunners of what would follow. The Jewish believers in Jesus marched up, brutalized, beaten, that which Paul did uh, 30 years before by the mid-60s A.D., listen, this had ramped up even harder and farther. Thousands of Jewish believers, families were torn apart. Children were traumatized as they watched their fathers being marched out of the home, beaten, bloodied, scarred, even near death, put in chains and marched off. Here a young kid seeing dad ripped away from them that way. Can you imagine the trauma? Sometimes it wasn't just dad, it was mom and dad. Gone. Kids without parents. Homes burned to the ground. Chapter 10, the author of Hebrews kind of alludes to some of what was going on in the opposition. In chapter 10, verse 33, some of them were made a public spectacle. And the Greek terminology for public spectacle even suggests the kind of public arenas where believers in Jesus were tortured, bodies torn apart. Early on, it was already happening. And it was a sporting engagement to many of the Roman citizens. The implications of what was occurring in, in uh, chapter 10 of, of Hebrews and and verse 34, there were countless hundreds and thousands who were imprisoned. Why? Simply because as Jews, they said, Jesus is my Messiah. He is my Savior. He is my sin bearer. I will honor him. I will walk with him. I will worship him. And I will not deny him. And by the way, in spite of many of the kind of online and, and you know, TV sermons you hear, oh my goodness, it's nauseating. You know, it's not always your best life now. Sometimes your best life now here is the worst that can be imagined for many. And there are many brothers and sisters all across the globe today suffering for Jesus, much like these early Jewish believers did 2,000 years ago. Unspeakable horrors because they would name Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
and there live honorably for him. And back here, was there they were. They're in prison. Verse 34, the seizure of property burned to the ground. Listen, this is real life. This is what was going on. And the indications historically written in the mid-60s A.D., it wasn't going to get better. They weren't going to get richer. They weren't going to get, at least here, happier. They weren't necessarily going to get released. There wasn't going to be good things to come. There wasn't necessarily here a light at the end of the tunnel. It was going to get darker and harder. Nero hadn't been unleashed yet. The temple was still standing. And the rage of hell would not only be set against followers of Jesus, but all Jews, as the temple would be utterly destroyed. It was just four years away. That's the setting into which this writer, and as many times as I've as I searched and studied this letter, I marvel at his passion. But I also sense in the writer, at this stage, he's not quite sure who his audience is. I mean, the real faithful believers in Jesus, they were pretty easy to mark. Because they were the ones suffering. And if they weren't seeing their homes seized, and if they weren't thrust into prison and they were still free, what many of them were doing was ministering to those who were struggling. They were visiting prisoners. They were caring for broken families. They were faithfully preaching the gospel. They would not retreat. They were easy to identify, but frankly, the rest of the crowd was hard to find. Because there were large numbers who claimed, yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I know Jesus. Yes, he's my Savior. Yes, he died for my sin. Yes, he rode again. Yes, I was part of the body, but how much more do you expect us to take. For some of them, to protect their family and children, what they concluded was the price was too great. A lot of them were excommunicated from the Jewish communities. They were not permitted, if they sold goods, to sell them in the Jewish community, no one would buy from them. If they offered a service to the Jewish community, no one would employ them. If they wanted to buy services or buy products, they were completely isolated, excommunicated. They couldn't do a thing financially. They were actually bankrupt. And if it wasn't for believers caring for them, they would have nothing. That was reality. It was life. It was bleak. And there wasn't much of an expectation that things would get better. And so there were a host of those who said, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I just can't take it any longer. And they retreated. And they went back to the synagogue where it was safe, where the pressures were removed, where they could once again financially find themselves at least surviving, at least making it, providing for their family. They retreated to Old Testament worship, Old Testament practice, Old Testament sacrifices, Old Testament festivals. It was easier. And I'm not going to be here arrogantly throwing stones at them either because I have no idea where I would be if I were in that same place. And I wouldn't be presumptuous to suggest to you that I would be otherwise. I honestly don't know. I'd like to believe I'd be at a different place. 
I'm not sure I want to find out. That's the setting. And to that setting, this author writes. The faithful are obvious. Those who have said they believed and withdrew. Hard to differentiate between them and other Jews, countless hundreds of thousands, who heard the message of the gospel, may have been that close to believing, but when they looked around them and saw the horror of what followers of Jesus were experiencing, many of them said, no thank you. Not going to follow that God, not going to go that route, too big of a price. Not willing to, as Jesus preached a number of years before, count the cost. How many times did Jesus preach that sermon? And we see it in the Gospels over and over again. Anyone who does not deny himself and pick up what? His cross. Didn't know that's what it meant cannot be my disciple. That was Jesus' invitation for salvation. Not just enjoy this little piece of pie and everything will be wonderful. So what does he do? Nine and a half chapters, what this author does is replant truth into the heart and soul of those who would dare to read and listen. The truth in nine and a half chapters is we better remember who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Because if that truth doesn't permeate our lives and infect every decision, every word that we speak, every relationship that we would engage in, if truth doesn't change it, nothing will that will be lasting. Because a large part of where they were were driven by how they were feeling. Sorry for themselves, sorry for their struggles, sorry for their hurts, and, and frankly, understandable sorry, sorrow. So, sorry for their family, sorrow for their loss. They were really hurting. The danger is you become so self-consumed in your own woes and misery, you lose sight of everybody else around you because it wasn't like they were alone in their agony. So what does he do? You better remember who Jesus is. You really want to go backwards? You really want to walk away from him? Who are you walking away from? Who are you turning your back on? The opening words of, of the book of Hebrews remind us who Jesus is. He's the almighty God, the creator God, the sustaining God. It's who he is. He's not just sent from God. He is God. He didn't just come to provide and offer uh, for salvation, he came to become the offering of salvation, didn't he? Hebrews chapter 1 reminds us who he is and, and what he did. He made purification for sin. Later in the book of Hebrews, once for all, once for all, once for all, he became the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, the Yom Kippur Lamb, the one and only sacrifice that, that didn't just cover sin as a Kippurah, but he purged our sin and he ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's been risen from the dead. You believe that? That's who he is. You, you turn away from him, you better get clear who you're turning your back on. And you better remember that he hasn't turned his back on you. He hasn't turned his back on you. So he appeals to them. He's God. He's greater than the angels. 
In Jewish theology, there's no place higher you go than angels other than God. So by implication of his theology in chapters 1 and the early part of chapter 2, when the author proclaims he's greater than the angels, it was his way of saying he is God. Period. End discussion. Greater than Moses. Greatest of sacrifice. Greatest of priests. Bringing in a, a new covenant. There's his theology. It's the truth of God that becomes the platform for the application and exhortation of Scripture. And in the last couple of chapters of Hebrews, there are three therefores that he takes us through to remind us of the answer to the simple question, what do I do with all this if I really believe it? Many of you remember the words well of chapter 10 and verse uh, 19. The first of the three therefores, remember? Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. And he goes through the theology again of who Jesus is, what he's done for us. But remember those practical challenges? Verse 22, you see it? Let us what? Draw near with sincere faith. Not faking it, not a masquerade. In full assurance of faith. We'll come back to the end of verse 22 in a minute. Then verse 23. Let us hold fast. What we know here in our head needs to be transplanted into the heart and soul. Real faith isn't academic. The Pharisees gave off enough of that, and frankly, their academics wasn't too accurate either. It isn't about filling your brain with all kinds of truth. It's allowing the truth of God to infiltrate the mind to the heart and soul and produce life transformation, right? I'm going to hold on to that going to hold fast to that. I will not waver from that. I will not allow my feelings, my emotions, my circumstances to alter what I know to be true. I will allow what I know to be true to alter how I respond to my emotions and my circumstances. And then you get to the familiar verse 24. Let's consider how to stimulate one another. And we'll get into the one anothering. So there's the first therefore. And the second therefore, remember, is chapter 12 and verse 1. Building off of the 11th chapter, that is a, uh, a, wonderful, a wonderful challenge of the faithful believers. Remember chapter 11, the hall of fame of faithful. Those who have gone on in great faithfulness, those who have honored God facing enormous obstacles, they did not retreat. They did not withdraw. Oh, they had their struggles and battles along the journey, but pressed on and Following that, he reminds them of those great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every encumbrance, the sin which so easily entangled us. Let's run the race that is set before us. It's, it's the, the image of the marathon. Running a race. Important to grab because we're going to come to that in a second in verse 12. We run that race fixing our eyes on Jesus. And that's going to be a reminder here in a moment again. The most dangerous place for us to be when we are feeling emotionally, spiritually spent. The worst place we can be is doing a spiritual selfie. Know what I mean by that? This is the selfie generation, huh? I mean, some of it's cool because you can get to see people. But 
it's also a reflection of where our culture is. It's all about me. It's all about me, 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 me. It's not a note on a scale either. All about me. Look at me. How wonderful I am, how beautiful I am, how accomplished I am, all that I've done, all that, I, all that you think I've done. I want to make sure you think I've done, even though I haven't done it. I want you to know I have. And, and so it just goes on and on. Yeah, you caught some of that, didn't you? Uh, look at me. That's exactly where many of them were. And, and it's easy to get there. When circumstances just chew you up, spit you out, when you're burnt, when you burn yourself, because sometimes we do stupid real well, win the Academy Award for dumb. Sometimes it's because of what we produce in ourselves. Sometimes it's because of what circumstances or situations produce in us that we have no control over, can't change, can't alter. We are literally a product of what has occurred. And frankly, no matter what the cause of where we are at that juncture, emotionally and spiritually and physically, the response is the same. If we're going to run well, we better focus on the finishing line. Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author of our faith. He's the one who called us, who brought us into a relationship with him. He is the sanctify the perfecter. He is the one who will prevent us, present us before his throne faultless and without blame. He is the one who, having begun a good work in us, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Because frankly, in the end, it's all about him, isn't it? It's never about selfie. Do a selfie, put up Jesus. But don't do that because you want to create an image and we'll start worshiping the image. We don't want to do that either. Hmm. He deals with this selfie stuff in, in um, verse 3. There's a perspective verse. We better, we better think about him. Of course, the end of verse 2 first, remember what he endured. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He went through it, didn't pull himself out of it. Sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, and, and verse 3, you better think about him. Consider. You better do some math work. You better add it up. You better come to a right summation. You better add your numbers correctly. Make sure your calculator is working. Make sure you get to the right conclusion. You better consider the truth of who he is and what he's done. Look at what he endured. Such hostility by sinners against himself, the undeserving one, the sinless Son of God. And where was he when he was on that cross, enduring all that he faced? Not just physical anguish, but the wrath of God from all of history placed upon him. He who knew no sin became what? Sin for us. You better consider him. Look at what he endured. Look, look, look at what he suffered. So that you won't grow weary and lose heart so that you won't find yourself spiritually, emotionally spent, worn out, shot, done, quit, throw it in the towel, can't take it anymore. I've had just about enough. That comes not just from circumstances, friends. Listen, it comes from who I'm looking at in the circumstances. Verse 4 is powerful. This is one of those uh, shock treatment verses. 
You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. Now listen, he's not talking about physical death. This is terminology of Old Testament sacrificial system. You have not become the offering for sin. For all that we are suffering and all that we are enduring, for all that we are facing, we have not placed upon us the wrath of the Father. So it's like a shake-up time saying we've got to get some perspective here. It's bad, I know. Remember Jesus, who became our priest and our mediator. Early chapters of Hebrews, he understands our woes and our sufferings. He is a faithful, merciful high priest. He knows what it is to hurt. He knows what it means to be rejected, to be scorned, to be marked, to be mocked. Remember the cross? If you're the Son of God, come down. The viciousness of the cross. Did he become selfie? Did he become self-consumed? What becomes his model on the cross? Father what? To those who were treating him with that hostility, Father what? For... Whoa. And then it gets real personal, doesn't he? Looks at John, looks at Miriam, his mom. He'll be your son. He'll take care of you now. John, take care of her like she's your mom. The ultimate of selflessness. Peter tells us that Jesus left us a model for us to follow in his steps. So we're in great shape because that's all the introduction to the sermon. <laughs> Oops. Some things never change. Um, I. I want you to look at his, his exhortations in verses 12 and following. I, I won't spend forever. Well, close, no. Um, it, it's, you, see, you see that to me, some of these exhortations just explode from the page. In verse 12, I see the verb in, in command form, strengthen. In verse 13, I see the verb make straight. In verse 14, I see the command pursue. In, see, in verse 15, see to it. They're all exhortations. They're all challenges. Here's real specific. He's giving us some info. Uh, how do I set my eyes on Jesus? How do I run this race? And he does begin with Greek marathon Olympic imagery and running. I don't run, but I've been doing a lot of walking, three miles. I'm too old. It's too hard. I want to quit. Uphill some of it. Oh, I'm not happy when I'm in the uphill climb. I'm tr trust me, I I ask myself constantly, what are you, an idiot? Why are you doing this? Masochist or something. He picks up on the, on the marathon imagery in verse 12. Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. I've talked to friends who do marathon running, and they tell me that the toughest time in the marathon, for different runners, it's a different time. Sometimes it's early on, midstream, late stream. They said the two things that start to go first are the arms, and that was one I didn't realize. Arms actually go. I guess, you know, you need the arms when you're running for, for rhythm and coordination to stay upright so you don't trip over your feet and fall on your face. And a number of them said to me, at some point, some of them late in the journey, some early on, as I'm running, the first thing I'm really feeling pain in are my shoulders, my arms, my elbows, my hands, my, the, my arms just start to ache. And what I feel like doing is, is just letting my arms just kind of hang. 
just let's let him run, run like I'm limp. But, but they said, if I do that, I'm going to fall on my face and end up in the hospital in the emergency room. But that's the first to go. There's a weakness that's there. And of course, the, the, the legs, the knees, they, they start to crumble. They start to, start to give way. I don't know about you, but there's something that strikes me in, in the commands of, of there in verse 12, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. What strikes me is the word that's not there, not just the words that are. There's no personal pronoun. He does not say, <clears throat> strengthen your hands that are weak or strengthen your knees that are feeble. He's not talking about self-care. He's driving them to think beyond themselves. It's not just you. It's not just your woes. It's not just your pain. It's not just your struggle. It's not just your hardship. Jesus modeled it. It's all about one another. He's been giving you all these one another things throughout this letter, filled with them. It's time to look beyond the selfie. It's time to look around at one another because around you there are those running the race and their arms are weak and their knees are crumbling and they're folding. But some of you are so self-consumed where all you can see is yourself. You're not seeing your brother and sister right next door to you who are about to do something disastrous. Look up unto Jesus. Perspective, remember who he is, what he's done for you, what he endured, his model. Look up, be transformed by up, and then out. So he drives them toward looking at one another. And then sticking with the, uh, the imagery in verse 13, make straight paths for your feet. Kind of calls into, into mind the, uh, the roads that were, that were marked by chariots that would move from north to south and between the different villages. And the, the chariot road would, would identify where it is I'm, I'm moving toward, where it is I'm passing through and so there's the reminder, keep your eye on the, on the path. It, it sounds like the author of Proverbs in uh, Proverbs chapter 4. Maybe these, uh, these words will be familiar to you. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 25. Let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right, nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Hmm? If you're going to run under these circumstances, and all you're doing is looking around you, all you're seeing are your woes, your misery, your hurt, your pain, your hardship, your struggle, your woe is me, your selfie, uh-uh. You've got to look unto Jesus and keep looking ahead because we're running toward a finishing line. And running there, remember, 
it's not old covenant running. Under the old covenant, you had maybe a little assurance temporarily that things were cleansed, that things were good, but you know, you keep going through the same festivals, the same moons, the same worshiped over and over again, same sacrifices, same feasts, had always be repeated. But in Jesus, remember what you, you have, and he's frequently reminding them in the, in the letter. I'll just take you back to one reminder, chapter 9, verse 13 and 14. Here's the big contrast between the old covenant and the new. If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, if all of those repeated sacrifices over and over and over again, if they set you apart, forgiven temporarily even before God, if there is an external cleansing, which is all they provided, if that's provided under the old covenant, look at the contrast to verse 14. How much more, how much greater is Jesus, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Look at what's accomplished in the end of verse 14. Look at the contrast. He doesn't provide just an external cleansing of the flesh. It's not just something surface or peripheral. It's not just temporal, but rather there is a cleansing of your conscience, a cleansing of the mind, a cleansing of the heart, a cleansing of the soul from all that is evil. And there is, in addition to that, an equipping, a supernatural enabling to what? Righteously live before him. So instead of looking in the mirror and looking at the selfie, I can look at the one who I've trusted and placed my faith in and find it is Christ in me, the hope of glory. Find in me the eternal spirit who seals me till the day of redemption. Find in me a supernatural equipping to endure every circumstance I face. I can't do it in my weakness. What? He is made strong. So there you go. Just a real quick conclusion through these verses. I know we're way over. But can't, can't quit here. Got to bring it to the end. There are some things he challenges us, them, to run after. Two of them in verse 14. The word pursue means to run swiftly, hard. Go after it with all your sweat, all your energy, all your being, all your might. Make it an absolute life priority and focus. High in the agenda list, if you're going to run somewhere, this is where you're going to run. If you're going to make a priority out of something, here's something to make a priority out of. Run, run, run hard. Pursue with passion, peace. 2,000 years ago, because of all that was going on, there were a lot of believers in Jesus who were really ticked at each other. Oh, man, there, there was anger flailing all over the place. Relationships splintered. How come their home wasn't burned to the ground, but ours was? How come my husband's in jail, beaten, but yours isn't? 
How come we can't buy anything but you can? Are you better than us? Listen, there was a lot going on. That splintered relationships. Run with a passion. It's peace. It is a bit of an irony because on the one hand, spiritual peace only comes from repentance and faith in Jesus. It's God produced, right? Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't create it. We don't run after it. We don't have to seek after it. It is His gift to us. Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace, brings to us His peace. He is our peace. That peace is God-produced, but there's a, there's a relational peace that we're challenged to run after. Psalm 34, verse 14, David says, Seek peace and pursue it. Uses dual verbs. Run after it. Run after it hard. Don't quit running. When you're exhausted, keep going. Don't stop. It's got to be a focal point. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 says, We, we have to endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And in the preceding verse, verse 2, he tells them what has to change inside of us to get there. Well, I don't like verse 2. It's way too convicting. So can we skip that one, please? <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. I don't even have time to get into it, but we need to. Those adjectives, with all humility... Which, which means i got to look in the mirror. If I'm doing a selfie, here's a selfie worth taking. i got to ask myself, if there isn't peace going on here, and 2,000 years ago there wasn't, i got to ask myself, how am I contributing to this breakdown? I can't keep pointing the finger. I can't keep saying, it's your fault, it's your fault, you need to change, you got issues, it's your problem. You cause my woes, you cause my pain, you cause my hardship. Pride says that, that's arrogance. Arrogance points a finger. Humility says, oh God, see if there be a hurtful way in me. What have I done to partially produce this disaster? And gentleness, the opposite is harshness. Hmm? I'm not going after with a, with a bazooka and a bulldozer and attacking. I, I want to be gentle. If anyone is caught in a trespass, Galatians chapter 6, restore such a one with what? You know, when your bone's out of joint, you're in the ER, you don't want some doctor who's done it 10,000 times who thinks you're a wimp, you know? You want someone who's done it 10 times who has compassion. Please be gentle, it's hurting. Gentleness. And patience. Keep at it. Keep at it. Seek after peace with all men. Keep at it. Enduring, and, and, and so it goes on. There needs to be a, a running after peace. And a running, verse 14, after sanctification, holiness, purity. Man, I'll tell you, the bitterness in them was, was tough. And verse 15, uh, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That, there's a translation of the Greek word for, for, um, for an overseer, episkopi. It, it's, 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 it, You've got to start looking out and oversee the others. What are they struggling with? What are they facing? It's them that matter. Make sure that those who are trailing behind, whose knees are feeble, who've collapsed, pick them up, carry them to the finish line. Have you seen that video of that, of that 
the, that student who, who ran the race and, and won but looks behind her at her competitor, her, her legs have collapsed and she actually goes back and picks up her competitor and carries her over the finishing line. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many are defiled. Now, we don't want to go there, right? Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor be put away with you along with all malice, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven us. And as far as Esau is concerned, the real tragedy of Esau, remember his deceitfulness and sin, the covenants that were entrusted to his granddad and his dad, he knew about. He knew the truth. He willfully rejected the truth, labeled godless. And even when he decided, okay, this blessing thing's cool, I'll buy in, There was no repentance. There was no genuineness. It was shallow. It was empty. It was fraud. The next 200 years. What's it going to look like? I'd be glad to survive the next two minutes. You feel kind of spiritually sapped, maybe? Maybe struggle to maintain some energy. Maybe uh, wondering where you go next. Remember where we need to look first. It's all about who. It's all about who he is and what he's done. And, and it's a real turning from our sin and embracing Jesus as the one who is our sin bearer once and for all. That he washes us, cleanses us, purges us from all of our wickedness. When we surrender ourselves to him, he transforms not only the outside, but he transforms the inside. Transforms the mind, transforms the heart, transforms the soul, transforms decision making. He is the ultimate transformer. You don't have to go to the movie to see it. That's the end. He is it. You want life change that counts? You want the fuel and the energy? that takes us into glory, presents us before his throne faultless and without blame. And we need to run to him. I close with the benediction of chapter 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, may he equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. We need you. Without you, our Father, there is nothing. We need you, Jesus. Without you, there is despair and hopelessness, but we thank you that in Christ we have life. Christ in us, the hope of glory, the Spirit of God who indwells us, fills us, anoints us, equips us, enables us, raises us up, convicts us, purges us, 
allows us by your mercies to be used before you. Oh God, may you have dominion and authority over us. We give you our hearts, our souls. May you breathe a fresh wind of your spirit within that we would look upward, look outward, and see a reason to say, Jesus, I am yours. For that we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.